Hello and welcome to Over the Edge. In this episode, Matt Trefiro interviews Matthew Steinberg, co-founder of Exhibit A Brewing, and Pierluca Ciodelli, Vice President of Engineering Technology and Edge Portfolio Product Management and Customer Operations for Dell. Matthew has been brewing beer for almost 20 years. After brewing a wide variety around Massachusetts, including Belgian styles, highly hopped ales, and barrel-aged offerings, he founded his own brewery, Exhibit A. Here, he creates his own modern takes on traditional beer styles. Pierluca has been with Dell Technology since 1999 and is currently VP Engineering Technology and Edge Portfolio Product Manager and Customer Operations. He's responsible for Edge Enterprise Dell Technologies Roadmap and strategic technical partners engagement across Dell Technologies. In the first segment of this interview, Matthew dives into the details of beer making from start to finish. He describes how Dell Technology has helped Exhibit A gather data and monitor processes for a more perfect brewing process, and how it can fix problems and save money for the brewery. In segment two, Pierre Luca gives his definition of the edge, describes the importance of connectivity in a setting like Matthew's Brewery, and explains how Dell Technologies is using this project as an example of their core value of promoting human progress. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by Dell Technologies to unlock the potential of your infrastructure with Edge solutions. From hardware and software to data and operations, across your entire multi-cloud environment, we're here to help you simplify your edge so that you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting DellTechnologies.com slash Simplify Your Edge for more information or click on the link in the show notes. Two years ago, when I started the Over the Edge podcast, it was all about edge computing. That's all anybody could talk about. But since then, I've realized the edge is part of a much larger revolution. That's why I'm pretty proud to be one of the founding leaders of a nonprofit organization called the Open Grid Alliance, or OGA. The OGA is all about incorporating the best of edge technologies across the entire spectrum of connectivity, from the centralized data center to the end-user devices. The Open Grid will span the globe and will improve performance and economics of new services like private 5G and smart retail. If you want to be part of the Open Grid movement, I suggest you start at opengridalliance.org, where you can download the original Open Grid Manifesto and learn about the organization's recent projects and activities, including the launch of its first innovation zone in Las Vegas, Nevada. And now, please enjoy this interview between Matt Trefiro and Matthew Steinberg, co-founder of Exhibit A Brewing, and Pierluca Ciodelli, Vice President Engineering, Technology, and Edge Portfolio, Product Management, and Customer Operations at Dell Technologies. All right, so I'm excited to talk to Matthew first. Matthew, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I actually, someone came in this morning and was like, how was your weekend? I'm like, it was amazing, actually. I had this incredible weekend. Well, you know, and this is a first for Over the Edge, where I'm talking to someone who's not a technologist, but is using technology, which I think is kind of fun. It's being used in one of my favorite topics, which is making beer. Uh, Actually, drinking beer is one of my favorite topics, but we're going to learn about making beer. How did you get started in beer making? So I come from a family of entrepreneurs, for sure. My father was in the auto service business here in Massachusetts for basically 48 years. And when I started looking at college as a kind of avenue to figure out what was going to happen with the rest of my life, the plan was I'm going to get into the tire business. I'm going to start from the ground up. I'll do flat repairs in the summers. I'm going to figure out how to become an operator and learn everything I can about the tire business. 
And that quickly became, I have no interest in being in the tire business. <laughs> and I'm like the plumber's kid with the leaky sink. So I have tires that are constantly having issues. And so I went to college. I had a friend who was a home brewer and I kind of thought, wow, that's really interesting. I, I love the idea of creating something from nothing, from ingredients. And so I, I looked at it with him and, you know, we brewed some beers together. I relocated from Amherst, Massachusetts to Flagstaff, Arizona for college. And there was a homebrew shop a block from my apartment. And I was like, I'm going in there. I'm going to tell them they want to hire me. And I'm going to learn from zero to, you know, and just kind of go from there. Immediately became kind of a little bit of a local homebrewer that had lots of friends and immediately decided this is the trajectory I want to be on. That's really amazing. Yeah. And today, tell me a little bit about Exhibit A, which is your company. So Exhibit A, we founded very late 2015. We ended up starting our first batches of beer in July of 2016. We will be celebrating our seventh year in August of this year. It's just a, been a whirlwind, to say the least. Massachusetts is a very exciting and rather mature beer market. When you start a beer company here, people immediately are like, okay, I got to see what these people are up to. The industry, you know, the market welcomed us. I had 17 years experience previously to opening this. And so I kind of had a little bit of a running start. We launched with a lot of fanfare. There was people showing up that didn't even know we were happening. And so it was really exciting to just see it all kind of come to fruition. And I had my first hires and two of those people are still here. Yeah, we have a great team. We're a production team of seven now, starting with a production team of hello, just me, um, and then two, and then three, and now we've grown to seven plus myself. It's been amazing, you know? Now, I can't wait to get out there and visit the brewery. So, so tell me about that first batch. I don't know how many of my listeners actually know how to brew beer. Uh, right. I'm sure we imagine it's, you know, there's some fermentation and the hops and other things that go into beer. But walk me through that first batch. Was it in your garage? Was it in a warehouse? What does the equipment look uh, like? Like, walk me through that very first batch that you made. I mean, the first batch of beer I was involved in was literally me and my friend's college apartment, and I was cleaning a keg for him in his shower. It's not a visual that anyone wants to participate in, but it was one of those things like, oh, you can make beer in your kitchen. Okay, this is interesting. I was a professional baker at the time, if you will. I was a college student with a job. Okay, yeast. I see the connection. You know, the sourdough at this particular bakery, they were very good to me and understood that I was interested in this yeast. And, and my former boss and still friend, Christy, was like, yeah, you should probably somehow figure out how to do what we're doing with sourdough bread with beer. And that homebrewing hobby became just an obsession. I mean, I didn't stop. I, I brewed beer every week. Some weeks I was brewing daily. I was kind of excelling in terms of finding ways to make beers be really delicious. And I discovered very quickly that I was an ingredient-driven person when it came to conceptualizing and designing beers, which has pushed me beyond my wildest dreams as a brewer now, because now we have access to ingredients that we didn't expect to be able to use, be it locally grown grain. There's hops that some of the best hops in the world are grown in this country in the Pacific Northwest. And we are, we're friends and colleagues of hop farmers that we get to go visit every year and you dig in. We smell the hops and we pick the lots that we want. It's really an ingredient-driven process that has all these other facets of art and science and technology. But really, it's what grows in the ground is what is the soul of these beers, you know? I used to live in San Francisco, and so I know the concept of sourdough bread and the concept of the mother dough, right? Yeah. Does beer have the equivalent of sort of a, you know, a, a mother dough that seeds all the beers, or is that just something yeah. that's for people to do? No, okay. it, 
It does, yeah. So, so when we produce a batch of beer, you can buy a single cell that's grown and a pitchable quantity that you'd call it. Like a pitchable quantity in bread would be like tear open the packet, pour it in the thing, let it grow. So what we do is when we ferment a batch of beer, once that fermentation is done, we let the yeast kind of settle and then we pull it from the bottom of the vessel into another clean vessel. We feed it sugar and we let it kind of blossom in that vessel. And then when the next batch of beer is ready to be produced, which is generally the next day or you know the following week, we pitch it right in and that yeast is now in its element and it's eating those sugars and creating all those amazing flavors and producing CO2 and alcohol. And so, yeah, I mean, it is very much a repitched mother if you will. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's the living part of beer. Where's the original? What's the heritage of the original mother? It's Great Britain. Our house yeast is actually an English variety of yeast that is basically what a lot of brewers would refer to as English dry yeast, meaning that it produces a relatively dry product. It's very versatile and resilient. So there's a lot of things we can do with that yeast. We have other yeasts that we bring in. We have lager yeast, which is very different from ale yeast. And we also have our Kolsch yeast, which is for a particular beer, Goody Two Shoes. That's its own little yeast on its own. That's kind of like a hybrid between an ale and a lager. So we have all these different yeasts going, and we bring in varieties of other yeasts, be them Saccharomyces, which are clean brewing yeast, or sometimes Britannomyces and other wild yeasts that aren't generally found in, in breweries. This yeah. is fun. So this is a technical show, so I'm really glad that you're starting to geek out on this stuff, and I can tell you really enjoy it. So again, for, for most of my listeners who may not, you know, may have seen, have been in a brewery and seen the big stainless steel tanks or whatever, walk me through from, as you said, the ingredients. How do you make beer? What are the steps and where's the complexity and the nuance and the art? Like, can you just walk me from step one to a final bottle of beer or a, something I might pull from a tap? These days, it's a can of beer, as, as many okay, know. Yeah. I like to start with the grain because the grain is the soul. We have relationships with farmers. We also have relationships with our maltster, which happens to be here in Massachusetts. Now, what is, what is malt? Malt is processed grain. So we basically get raw grain, it gets sent to the maltster where they basically allow it to root. They arrest that growth and with heat and air and time, they malt it, which is basically like germinating, kilning, drying. They're here in Massachusetts. They're one of our biggest partners. You know, we constantly are talking about our locally sourced grain. So we get all sorts of grains from them that are grown throughout the Northeast, whether it's New York, Connecticut, Maine, some in Massachusetts. So that grain, when it is processed and turned into malt, it is shipped here in 50-pound bags. And we basically blend that with water. We crack it open with a mill just like you would for, saying, making flour, except it's a slightly less cracked. And you do that in your facility? We do. We have a mill that we basically pour the bags of grain into and bring the grain into a bin above our mash tun where we blend hot water and this cracked milled grain. That process is basically making a big batch of cereal, you know, for lack of a better term. Like malted meal? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, basically. And so that 150 degree porridge rests various amounts of time depending on what kind of beer we're making. There's now, why 150 degrees? enzymatic activity and converting starches to sugars. And you haven't put any yeast in yet? No. The little yeast buddies aren't going to work yet. Okay. No, there's no yeast involved yet. 150 degree mash. And that mash can consist of, like I said, hundreds of different varieties of grain, lots of different times and temperatures as well. Like one or two degrees temperature fluctuation will actually change whether the beer finishes dry or sweet. 
Yeah. And you, do you typically brew beer with one grain or do you mix grains or is that just part of the beer maker's art? It, that is definitely the art. Most of our beers hover between, say, three and six different varieties of grain. And that's just based on my own kind of this is how I do it. And every brewer is different, I suppose. And are there other nuances like, you know, I don't know how fine you use the mill to grind the malt? Yeah, the, that nuance is more related to efficiency and not sticking your mash. Sticking your mash is basically when you're trying to run the liquid off and it becomes this concrete ball and you can't get the liquid through it. Yeah, my kids live cereal in the bowl and, and yeah. you know, at the end of the day, it's like, it is like concrete. Yeah, it really yeah. is. You build a house out of yeah, it. Yeah, I'm a grape nuts guy. So like, I, I see that. I, I eat the concrete. <laughs> yeah, they're concrete when they start concrete with the end <laughs> yeah um, but yeah so we so we have this mash we want to separate the liquid from the grain okay. and that liquid is called wort wort is j basically just sugar water right and so that wort is transferred into a kettle where we'll boil it the grain that's now basically not dry but has been removed all, all that liquid has been removed it's kind of like this fairly dense dried out grain and that is then donated, or I should say, we pay to have it removed by farmer. So our farmer, Dave, comes and picks up grain from us every day. He feeds it to his cows and his pigs. This is your grain farmer or is this a different farmer? It's a, he's actually a cattle farmer. So our grain farmers don't want the spent grain. <laughs> Still, that's, a, that's amazing. Yeah. That's a really neat full cycle. Um, it is. He's a, a dairy farmer and a pig farmer. I haven't gotten any bacon from him, but I think most of his pigs are just kind of friends of the family. I don't think he slaughters yeah, most of his names. pigs. Yeah, they have names. And removing this grain is essential to the success of our business because we have to get rid of it. And it yeah. starts to ferment right away and it can become a real problem, both in terms of bacteria growth and stuff. So he gets it out of here. This yep. wort, this sugar water, why, why do you yeah. boil it? We boil it to pasteurize it. And also the boiling process, once the hops are in, actually does things to those hops. So if we boil hops, they will become isomerized. And that process is actually what brings out the bitterness in the hops. So when we boil the hops, the alpha acids that are in those hops are the bittering components. And the longer you boil it in terms of bitterness is concerned, the more bitter the beer will be. Now, there's a lot of variations there that don't just correlate to how long you boil it. There's strength of the hops, how long the hops are in there. The sweetness of the wort can also affect how bitter the beer will perceive, right? So we boil it, let's just say for argument's sake, we're boiling the thing for about an hour and a half. Every beer is a little different. We have beers that we boil an hour. We have beers we boiled for three hours. And that's all, again, part of that art. And so we're boiling these hops. Now, this, the hops that are in the kettle are purely for balancing that sugar, that sweetness. So that bitterness that people talk about in beer is really about balance. In Exhibit A with the scale, we think a lot about balance. We care deeply about balance and making sure that our beers reflect that. And so once we've boiled, we need to cool it down. And before we do that, we want to separate some of the solids that have been left in this vessel. Protein, hot material, and other organic material that is from the mash is in that kettle. We don't want that in the finished beer. We don't even want it in the fermenter. So we spin it like a centrifuge. And that process is about a half an hour. During that process, we actually add more hops, lots of hops. And that hop addition, when we're not boiling, is actually more towards flavor and aroma. So we're not isomerizing the hops. The hops are just staying in solution. And the aromas and the oils, specifically the oils that are in the hops, are being released into the wort. Some of it stays there. And that's what, when you bring a beer to your nose, when you open it, you're like smelling this. So a lot of that comes from that addition. And we call that whirlpool hopping. Do you taste the beer at this point? 
Not really tasting. It's more of a, a smell. It's more of a aromatics, but it's not really even beer yet and won't be beer for some time. So you can do sensory on this moment of its process. And that's actually an important thing. And that's something we do participate in in the brewery where we'll pull out wort that's been hopped or not hopped and be like, okay, this is what it tastes like. And every batch after this should taste like this of this particular beer. So now we're in the Whirlpool. We want to cool it down. We run it through a heat exchanger, which then allows us to flush very cold water in one direction, say 40 to 5 degree water, which we keep in a tank. And we flush it through this heat exchanger, which literally exchanges the heat, Mm -hmm. takes 200 degree wort, turns it to 70 degree wort. 50 degree water goes to 180 degree water. That 180 degree water gets diverted to a hot water tank where we use it for the next brew, of course, because why would you throw that water away? And then the the wort. I was thinking the hot tub, but yeah, the next brew. Yeah, that cooled wort at 70 degrees gets moved into a fermenter. And now this is where the yeast will be added as well. We add yeast by weight and by cell count. So we bring the yeast into a lab here on on site and either Andrew or Kyle or John or Brendan or one of the folks in the brewery, Dara does yeast counting as well. They literally put it under a microscope and they have a little counter and they count the yeast cells and we're aiming for a particular density, particular viability and overall yeast health. You're looking at and smelling the yeast as well just to make sure everything is as it should be. This part to me is kind of the most exciting because this is when it becomes beer. You've added yeast Tomorrow, we're going to start to see fermentation. And the fermentation part, it's basic. You're talking about this is how much sugar is in the beer. This is how much the yeast is going to eat. This is how much sugar is left in the beer after fermentation. That's going to tell you your alcohol. It's going to tell you how sweet the beer is. It's going to tell you how, obviously, how strong the beer is. The body of the beer, all that comes from other parts, but it's all kind of connected. The maturation process that happens after fermentation is really when it becomes something I would want to share with you. Like, it's not ready to be shared after fermentation. It needs to mature. The flavors need to kind of marry and become what they're supposed to be. Now, maturation, is that sitting in a tank or is there more to that process? The main part of that process is just rest in the tank, time in the tank, and also temperature change. And we're just going to talk about ales for lack of a better reason to talk about all the different varieties. But in our, in terms of our brewery, ales are fermented at basically 70 degrees. Eventually, we'll have it cold at 32 degrees before it's packaged. There's other things that happen. We do something called spunding in Germany, Spundet, which is basically a way of capturing that CO2. So we do actually put pressure on the tank naturally through fermentation and then add a spunding valve to the fermenter itself, which allows pressure to build but escape slowly. So we're fermenting under pressure. We're capturing all of that CO2, which most people might understand that it is a greenhouse gas that we don't want to lose because if we lose it, it goes into the world and it's just not great for the world. So any bit of CO2 that we can capture and put into the beer for your enjoyment is great because we want those fresh, crispy bubbles and we can add them by just pumping CO2 into the beer upon completion. There's an ecological piece to that, but really natural carbonation is just better carbonation. Right. And why pay for a tank of CO2 when you can make it yourself? Well, it was 11 cents a pound last year. It's going to be 27 cents this year. So, yeah. <laughs> now, now what, say that word again. Ugundespundit? Ugundespundit. Ugundespundit. That is a great – that should be like a band. That's a great word. Yeah, there probably <laughs> really, is a band. It really probably. is. That's really awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so let's talk the final step. So the final step might be going into a keg, and that's the tap room. But you mentioned cans, and I think that's really yeah. interesting because still I think a lot of people think that like a can is a lesser way to drink beer than other ways. Maybe you can explain to our audience why. I mean, the can is a better 
package, period. There is no better package for a single serve vessel of any beverage, in my opinion. And actually, it's not just my opinion. It's, it could be argued that these are the reasons. No light, more recyclability, lighter weight. So a pallet of glass bottles that we used to buy in the 90s weighs about 2,200 pounds. Just the bottles? Just the bottles. There's no beer in there. Just bottles, empty pallet of bottles. That same pallet of a similar volume of liquid that it would fill is like 300 pounds of cans. Yeah. So you can literally drag that pallet across the floor and this, this one ton pallet of bottles, you're not dragging anywhere. So think about that in terms of freight, resources, sending it back, bringing it in, all of that. So it's, it's actually a far better package just in terms of weight itself. For me as a user of the equipment needed to fill cans, the technology has gotten there where craft brewers like us can afford to buy the equipment, maintain the equipment, and grow with the equipment, which is really important because I could buy a small canning line, but the second I grow, I got to get a new one. And you're talking about seven-figure investments potentially on canning machines. So it's a vital piece of what we do. We've invested a lot of money in our canning facility. And it's the greatest package that craft beer could have hoped for. How does beer get into a can? What does your machine do? (laughs) So it's, it's basically like we run a hose from a tank. We purge it with CO2. It's clean and sanitized. And so it comes through the machine. And then there's these fill heads. Basically, we use flow meters and sensors and temperature and pressure sensors that read the beer as it comes in. There's like a lot of like manual adjustments, some PLC adjustments, and then we balance those pressures and temperatures and the beer gets filled into the can. The can then leaves, it's on a conveyor belt. It leaves that little fill station. It gets a lid put on it automatically. It then gets seamed, closed, and then it goes through a little bit of a kind of car wash where it gets rinsed externally. It then gets blown dry externally. And then it goes through a date coder, a check weigher that confirms that it weighs the right amount so that our guests and our people in the stores are buying our beer and it's like not half full or worse, overfilled, where you open it and it just erupts all over you. And then it actually gets a date code as well on the bottom collar. We date it so we know the batch number, the lot, when it was packaged. And then it comes off and it'll get a label put on automatically. It comes to the end of the machine where we have this applicator for these plastic carriers that are like the four-pack carriers that you see in the stores. And then it gets put on. And then, you know, there's four people running this machine or three. And then there's a person at the very end. Lately, it's been either John or Brandon. And these guys are thankfully a lot younger than me and can really hustle. And so they're literally taking full cases and putting them on pallets and just stacking them. And this machine is putting about three cases a minute off our machine. So every minute you're moving, you know, 72 cans of beer. Thank God their cans are not bottles, right? (laughs) It would be a lot heavier and uh, and probably slower. <laughs> All right, and then and then it goes through some distribution channel and stuff. So and then I then I buy it. I buy it in the store or I buy it somewhere else. And I got these four cans. Should I put them in my refrigerator? Should I store them at room temperature? You should store all beer cold. Now okay. that being said, beer isn't like milk, and it's even less like things that turn really fast. But the thing about beer for me as a producer is that I want you to taste it as I intended it to be. I want it to smell right. I want it to finish right. I want you to be super satisfied by it. Now, if it sits on the warm shelf and it's summer and it's 80 degrees in this retailer and it's sitting in the window, it's not going to be as good. It's not going to hurt you. It's not going to offend you probably terribly, but it might just not be what you expected it to be, especially if you're a regular consumer of our products. You'd be like, ooh, this cat's meow is not as good as it used to be or whatever. So that's death to us because all of a sudden it isn't 
oh, this one isn't good. It's, oh, they must have changed the recipe. It's not as good as it used to be. I'm not buying this anymore. So that is a problem on every level. So my focus is being in the best retailers that care about what they do. We date code our products. So if we notice that beers are getting old in the store, we yank them and we credit the store. It's a very costly way to control our quality, but it's necessary. Do you deliver in a refrigerated truck? Actually, we do. So we used to self-distribute in a van, and that's how we started. We had three accounts, then we had 20 accounts, then we had 150 accounts over about a two-year period. Servicing that with one salesperson in one van and a driver was really a challenge, and collecting checks was always fun from small retailers that are like, oh, you need me to pay you? Uh, Well, sort of. Um, And so we are now with a wholesaler, actually several of them. In Massachusetts, we're with Atlantic Beverage Distributors, which is a great partner of ours. And they do all of that work. They deliver in their refrigerated trucks. And then we have our own sales staff. And they are are four feet on the ground. And they are just hustling every day to represent us and sell the beer and, you know, make sure the quality is there. That's the most important piece. It's like one thing to, like, put a bunch of beer in a store – but if it's going to live there and die there, don't sell it to them. It's not worth it. Quality and intent are the most important pieces of this puzzle because I want people to get what we're doing and I want them to keep getting it. I don't want them to have any inconsistencies in, the, in what we deliver to them. Yeah, and, and my listeners are probably wondering, like, what does it have to do with edge computing? But here's the connection, right? <laughs> like, if, if, yeah. if you go back and listen to everything that you just described in the process of making beer, there were maybe... 50 to 75 times that you said this temperature, this pressure, this amount of time, and consistency is so important to you. So there's an obvious potential application of technology in the beer making process, and you've started doing that. Can you describe what's happening in your brewery now and where you see it going? So I thought about this a lot, obviously leading up to this conversation, and it's been a really exciting project because the thing that I've always relied upon is that art and science merge, right? We have this art that is like my creative outlet for making, conceptualizing a beer, whether it's the ingredients or the process or even what the label looks like. There's a lot of that art that goes into it. Science is like the yeast doing its thing, the malt being delivered properly. And, it's, and I thought about it as like the art of the beer relies on the science to do what it's supposed to do. The technology actually allows us to control it. The tech helps us realize and observe the connection between the art and the science. So what we're doing here now is we're observing our temperature and pressure fluctuations in our fermenters. It's a first project. It's a very basic project, really, if you think about it, because the idea is when we're on it, when the beer is like perfect and it tastes great, and I'm using my hands to describe that, you can't see it, but the, the beauty of that is that we want to replicate that. But the hard part is, as a manual, slightly automated brewery, it's next to impossible to kind of manage that unless you collect all that data. So we're able to collect the data and be like, okay, the beer was at this temperature and this pressure at this point. Why did this happen to make it change? Like, what were these changes that happened? And what can we do to kind of, you know, mitigate that later if it was a problem or like, present it as like, this is how we do it. This is our new SOP. This is our operating procedure that we will stick to. And so all of this temperature probes and and controllers and the interface that Dell has installed here is allowing us to study that, 
to just make better beer. I mean, that's literally the simplest way I can put it. The exciting part for me is actually beyond this first project, which is to really dig deep into our pain points as a brewery and what we can do to add this technology, not just make better beer, but create better processes, create more consistency, give our staff the tools they need to do these jobs, right? And so it's incredible. Like for a small craft brewery like us that's like producing you know, the equivalent of maybe 70,000 cases a year to be able to have this technology is ridiculous. I mean, it's like, it's kind of a dream. What a treat for us to be able to be kind of the guinea pigs in this project. So I'm going to ask you for sort of two examples. One is a a mystery that data helped you solve. Why don't we start there? If you could describe a, a mystery that data helped you solve and how data helped you solve it. So the mystery that we had before all this started was that we would have temperature fluctuation was kind of within norm generally. And then every once in a while, we'd have this big outlier where the temp would either increase a lot due to the fermentation heating up and maybe the tank not catching up to that and cooling it off rapidly enough. And even more so on the other side, cooling down too rapidly. So we were having this issue with our glycol in the fermenters over chilling the beer. And during primary fermentation, which is not good, it it creates real problems with flavor later on in the product. It also is something that you can't, you wouldn't want to replicate. Like we want temperature to be very consistent during primary. And we can do that now that we have the data collectors, you know, the sensors in place telling us, I was looking at it last on on Saturday night. I was here. I was like, Ooh, 69.6. Ooh, it went to 69.7. Oh, it's down to 69.6. And I'm like, wow, it's really locking in that really tight gap of temperature flux, which is really important. And so the pain point was not really knowing on a, say, consistent basis what that temperature fluctuation was. And if it's like this, that's fine. But if it's like this, you know, up and down, up and down, or like these tiny little intervals, that's just really important to know. And so if there is a temperature change, we see where it happened, and we can actually dig into why it happened. Now, Dell isn't providing that part, but we can, as users of these tanks and understanding how they work, we can collect that information and make an informed decision on what happened. We haven't really seen that much temperature changes, which has been nice. There's so much more to study in that. And I think that putting sensors on all of our tanks is something that we really want to do in order to see every batch of beer and every change that goes on while the beer is alive in that tank. And so moving it to packaging is the next step. And we're talking a lot about our canning line and what the pain points are there. So for instance, when a can comes onto the machine, it could get damaged. It could be dented already. It could have like a weird imperfection in the top, very delicate part of the can where it's about to get seamed. If we can't see that necessarily, there's thousands of cans on the machine. We're going to put in sensors that can see that. Like a computer vision system that can detect And remove that can automatically from the system. Like have literally a little boot that just goes and it kicks it right off the machine and they and we have that on filled side with our check wear Um, so that's something that we'll be able to incorporate as well as other things like temperature pressure and fill height adjustment meaning like when we fill a can we know exactly what the temperature is of that liquid that went into that can so i want that data collected right now we can't collect that data it's just there it happens it goes away so if we have a way to collect that data put it into a chart and formulate a plan on how to really nail down that temperature every time and run it. And, and more, more than anything, it's about running the machine to take advantage of those things. Like if you slow the machine down, the beer is going to get warm. 
if you stop the machine, the beer is going to get really warm. And you can't fill warm beer. It's going to be a disaster. CO2 will come out of solution. It'll foam, whatever. So we're going to have all these little sensors all over the canning line telling us all the things that are happening. And that, to me, is like, you see that I'm smiling about it. I know. Like, I, wish, I, wish, I wish my audio <laughs> audience could see the smile on your face because you're yeah, definitely excited about this. It's exciting because aside from just being more efficient and producing better beer, it will help us save money which is a very important piece of our business right now, especially. I mean, people hear about like the canning crisis, like there's no cans available. Well, there's tons of cans available, but they're twice the cost that they used to be. And a truckload of cans used to cost $1,000 to ship it from Chicago. Now it's $5,000 to ship it from Chicago. So there's a lot of cost savings when you fix the problems that are causing issues with damaging your product, you know? And so that to me is like the reason for all of this is to be better, be more efficient, you know, the environmental piece is there. Every aluminum can I destroy, I bring to a scrapyard. He recycles it and he actually pays me for that can. I don't want to put it like some hippy dippy way, but I, you know, am a fan of the Grateful Dead. So I can say like, we are giving back to the environment by not destroying so much, you know, and that to me is really important. Yeah. Matthew, thank you. And, you know, I'm going to speak to your colleagues at Dell from their perspective. I'm wondering if I can get you to come back and join them at some point and we can, absolutely, the the three of us can (laughs) talk. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Okay, let me switch from beer to, <laughs> to technology. <laughs> Pierre Luca, it's great to have you here. We're going to talk a little bit about beer, but more about edge computing and technology and how technology is helping shape business. But before we get into any of that, I'm super interested. How did you get your start in technology? That's a very good question. <laughs> if you look at my background, I actually started the chemistry background. So I work in chemistry and then... I always loved technology. So since I was six years old, I started to play with the computer. At that time, it was a Spectrum and get kind of computers. And then I created my first BBS that's probably dated back in the days. That's like a website. Yes. 30 years <laughs> ago. <laughs> yeah, the prehistorian of the website. And BBS was very expensive to run from my house. So my dad forced me to run only a couple of hours a day. So I was running the night, and then I, during the summer, I started to go and work in a computer shop where I have this idea of basically selling video games or demo of video games in the BBS. It was kind of a pre-e-commerce kind of thing. So I always loved technology. I studied chemistry, and then I realized that I want to do technology, so I started to study also technology. I worked since then starting as a computer engineer, so fixing stuff around. And the difference was I was very interested to understand why something was breaking. And then I, I obviously work in support and then corporate engineer, product managers. And now I'm in Dell uh, running product manager and customer operation for the edge. So it's so been 24 years going to 25 in Dell. So. Wow, that's amazing. And technology, that's almost never heard of. That's really interesting. So edge computing on that scale is relatively new. When did edge computing become something that you wanted to specialize in? So at Dell, I did a lot of things. Uh, I created new products. One of my last things was with the team creating PowerStore. I was on the storage side. I was looking at new emerging technology, and I was always being very attracted by looking at what's going on, what is changing, 
And Dell is a great company because it gives us the opportunity to explore new things, right? When you are a part of a big company and you know exactly how to use the skill of the people that you have and apply them in the right way, they ask me and other people, including my boss, to look around and see, okay, is this edge things something that is interesting, is something that is growing, what Dell can do that is different from the other one for having a durable advantage. And so we start to look at the edge. It's not that you said the edge is new, but we've been selling at the edge for many years. But what is new at the edge is the data. <laughs> if you look at so the brewery example, there are a lot of data that they've been collected. What is changing from the past is that everything needs to be connected now. What is changing also that the data they are produced at the edge, they need to be accessed at the edge, right? If you are like the brewery example, producing beer and you need to look at the temperature and the gauge and collect the data continuously, you gotta access those data at the brewery, not in another place. So what is really changing is that the data that they are creating, they are always moving more to the edge, right? In the in the past was we create data in the data center in the cloud is fine, or we move data from the edge to the cloud, we can do that. But now there is a need for real-time intervention almost. And so that's very important. The other things that is changing is obviously everything is connected now, especially what we just passed in the last three years. If you think of the manufacturing floor, for example, there are PLC, there are things like that, and nothing was connected because you have in manufacturing the, the guy that was working on the machine that you buy that stay on the floor for 10, 20 years. He knows everything about that machine. He knows better than anybody else what is breaking, if the machine is running right or not. And there is a PLC on the machine in the past, but it was not connected because there was no need. You have a worker there. What is a PLC? It's a, it's a controller that makes the machine running and control different things attached to the sensor can make action of the machine. But the PLC itself, you can program a PLC with the language, but the PLC is on a machine. It's not connected to outside. It's not connected to other things. What has been changing, you have the worker programming the PLC of the machine and programming different machines. But what is this changing, especially what we live with the pandemic, there was no anymore worker on the floor. So everything needs to be connected. Same things happen if we switch to a retail place, right? In the retail place, in the past, there was no need. Everybody goes to the store. Everybody enters the store, buy the things in the aisle, and then pay. What has changed now, a lot of people now, they buy things online and they're doing curbside pickup. Now there is technology and there is micro-fulfillment. Someone needs to bring those packages. And so all of this, the connectivity accelerate the fact that you need to connect data, accelerate the fact that, as we heard in the brewery example, that you need to optimize, right? You don't have an army of people. And so you need to optimize. Optimize is important. And have the ability to connect things and access those data immediately is very important. So the shift really, why you need more compute, why you need more things at the edge is because the data are there, more data need to be processed there, and the edge is different, is outside of the normal data center. So to me, that was the excitement to enter in a space that 
was not a familiar space, understanding the constraint of that space, and understanding what we can do. Yeah, and when we first met, I challenged you with a question, and your answer was very interesting. And the question was, okay, Dell's been doing edge computing for 30 years. That's an interesting statement, because... I didn't know edge computing was around 30 years. I thought it was called on-premises computing. And so I asked you, I challenged you, like, what is the difference between a computer at Exhibit A today yes. as opposed to a computer at Exhibit A? Yes, like, what makes that edge computing? How do you think about it differently? Yeah, so as I mentioned, the edge is all about constraint. The edge is not a normal place. Like, for example, what we did at ZBT, we connect sensor with one of our gateways. This gateway is obviously not sitting in a cooling place in data center. It's exposed to all the agents that can be in a brewery. He also needs to be very compact. There is no networking, so he has 5G that need to be connected. So you need to be very compact. You need to be able to have resiliency inside of the hardware that you design, but also the software that you run on that need to be very efficient. And so the first thing is when we think about the edge is some place that is very different. And the place that is different causes you to be designed the things differently, not only from an hardware point of view that we did and we're doing, we have a huge portfolio, but also from a software point of view. So how you bring that application to connect to the sensor to that place can be, for example, one gateway, but can be thousands of gateways in a manufacturing floor that can be very different from another place. Or in the middle of the desert, you know, if you have an oil ring or you assist in military operation, right? There is all sorts of different things. And that's why the edge is different, right? You cannot apply the same rules. Everybody has a different definition of edge, and we're trying to converge on a common language. But I hadn't heard that before, and I think it's a really insightful idea, which is the edge is different because it has constraints. It's not a traditional data center. There may be constraints that are like, as you said, environmental. There may be constraints on networks, on power, on cost. And you're right. That is a very different way of thinking about things. Also security, for example. I mean, security. I mean, the edge, obviously, you are not in the data center. There is no door. There is no badges. There is no limited corner, you are not in the cloud. So as I said, you can have thousands of devices. So with the prolification of devices, it's become also very challenged to manage security. That's why you need to apply a zero trust approach. You can't trust anything at the edge. So that's a, a very a paramount thing as well that is happening, right? Because now you have an explosion of devices. We all have in also our houses and, and things like that. And also there, there is a lot of challenge with security. So you need to design the edge, especially the enterprise edge with security in mind. That's a very big thing. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. One of the things that you're pretty passionate about is this idea that organizations need to evolve how they're thinking, to think more consciously about the edge and to, you called it pitching internally, pitch the edge internally. Can you tell me why that's so important and how enterprises should be thinking about this? Yeah, absolutely. This has come from my experience, right? When I approached the edge, I was not an expert of the edge by any means. And so I need to learn. And when I come in with my background of enterprise IT, was very difficult to convince someone that edge was important or convince someone that there is really a need for the edge because you come completely from a different perspective. So the things you need to do internally is first understanding the process and the optimization of process as definitely an input and understanding that 
the personas that they are at the edge, they are different personas. In the example of the brewery, the main things of the brewery is to make beer. And when you ask to my friend, he said that he's not a technology, right? What he does is not technology, but he needs technology. That's the same thing when we think about any kind of edge. A retail store, the store manager is someone that is looking of what is the outcome that he needs. For example, he needs to make sure that checkout process is, a, is happening or in a manufacturing, we want preventive maintenance so you don't stop your machine and stuff like that. When we say outcome, we use a lot of this word. It's overused, right? At the edge is really about outcome. <laughs> the persona that you, you speak at the edge speaks about outcome. I need to raise my productivity by 30% in one year. That's the thing. So it's a different way to think in a thing because you may not be exposed as the solution is not only the compute solution, it's compute software and the entire solution, including the ISV, right? So it's an end-to-end -end thing. So it, that's the way to understand and bring the people to understand why the edge is important. And if you understand that, that you're looking more at the outcome and you can connect to that, then you can also do the other stuff that they are important to the IT. There is a convergence, for example, from IT OT on the fact, for example, that IT has a lot of best practice that they've been creating for many years. And when the network connect between the, the operational of OT to the IT, what's happening is you want to apply the IT best practice. And that's a point where different personas, they come together. So if you have kind of a translation book for say what is important on one side and what is important on the other side, and you can make that bridge, then you can have a full strategy that encompasses not only the cloud or the core, but also the edge. And you can apply best practices throughout the thing, and you can simplify. Because as you mentioned, edge is not simple. It's a lot of constraint. It's a lot of verticalized things. But if you apply technology across the things with the right best practice, then you make the life easier for everybody. Yeah, you know, one of my other guests, Joe Zhu, the CEO of ZenLayer, he had a really interesting definition of edge. He said, edge is where the compute meets the physical world. And I think that very much aligns with your concept of edge where the IT, which is, let's think of that, the compute, the cloud, the internet, the server, and the physical world, which is the factory, the fermenting tank, the sensor, the things like that. And I think it's a really interesting way to visualize it but also this idea that outcomes are important. And I think that's really critical because most businesses aren't in the business of making servers and software and make yes. the internet work. Most businesses are in the business of making widgets or beer or selling things in a retail environment and things like that. I mean, example, just a pure piece of software, Salesforce, great example, right? Like when a company buys Salesforce, they're not looking to buy a piece of software. They're looking to get an outcome, which is their sales team's perform at a higher level. And so when someone looks to adopt edge computing, they're not looking to buy edge computing. In fact, that's one of the things I've noticed when you talk to enterprises, like they're scared of edge computing. It's like, oh, this is a scary thing. But when you reframe it as, no, no, what, what edge computing does, it's a technology that we as experts, Dell and other folks that are bringing edge computing to bear on these problems, can help you improve your business. And so if your job is to make beer more consistently, to have less waste, to help your customers get through the checkout line faster, that's where edge computing can be applied. And your goal is to make your business more efficient or give your customers a better experience or things like that. And so I think it's, it's really insightful to think of it that way. 
How does edge computing exist inside Dell as a business? What's that look like? First of all, Dell has a lot of manufacturing, so we are adopting... Your own customer. Yes. (laughs) So the best things that we thought was why we not use our own internal things to understand and how we can make better. So we are working very close with our manufacturing, obviously, as the first line of deploy understanding not only what we're doing today, but what we're doing with Project Frontier, that is the things that we announced it's a software platform for the edge. So that's the first thing we're doing. Also internally, as an organization point of view, we are focused on the enterprise business. We are part of the ISG, that is our enterprise group, but we are the growing engine. So we are using the entire power of Dell portfolio. We are informing the portfolio to always make and have the best compute for each one of the use cases. As I described, there are many different use cases, but also we leverage technology that we're doing not only in the entire ISG from the compute point of view, hardware, but also software. So we are putting all this together. So it's interesting. I think the manufacturing internal experience is very interesting because it gives us a first-hand idea of what we can do and what are the potential and what we can do better and how we can impact also our own business internally. Another aspect that I'm very proud about because one of the core value of Dell is really about human progress. It's a very humble goal. It's also very difficult to connect you to directly to human progress. Now, when I start to look at the edge, I can say that because it's based on outcome, most of the things that we're doing most impactful, for example, one of the projects that we have in Latin America where there are more than half a million schools that don't have connectivity. What we're doing there, we bring an entire solution with Dell and other partners where the students, they can have an experience like is online, but actually is on-prem. So they have a catalog, they download the catalog through satellite or through this connection, but the student, they can connect with their laptop to the local Wi-Fi. It's like a, uh, a mini internet. Exactly. That's um, a batch, batch internet. <laughs> and, you know, we're doing that in places where people don't have connectivity. Otherwise, they yeah. cannot go to school. Otherwise, they cannot access to a library. There are thousands of examples like this, right, where mm-hmm. really we make the world a better place. You inspire someone there in school to learn that there is technology that can really change the way that does things. Then people become in love with the technology, but in the sense, in the good way. They see what technology can do for them. They're going to be advocate to also bring change in those places. To me, that's one of the things that I I like most, that you can connect yourself with something very tangible that is not only the business side, but it can change human life. Oh, I mean, it would be profound. I mean, I can't imagine my life or my children's life without access to something that feels like the internet. And if I could only have a fraction of that, I would want that more right. than nothing, and it would really open my eyes. So I see how that would have that direct impact on human progress. That's that's really great. Let's talk a little bit about Exhibit A, the brewery yep. that you're engaged with as a partner. What are you trying to do with them? What's going on there? So I think it's a very interesting thing that we did because A, not to say Exhibit A, A, yeah, right. uh, <laughs> but the first thing is we went to a place that was already there. It's just to prove, for example, that in the world of brewery or manufacturing, a lot of things that are already there. It's not that 
you're going to build a new brewery every day. It's not that you're going to exhibit A, that they have a very low budget because they have a very tight production, very good production, but tell to them, hey, let's rip off all the, all the other things that you have and put this cool stuff. They're going to do great things for you. So the first challenge and the first good things was to go to a place and try to modernize, right? How you put a computer where there was no compute, how you connect sensor where there was no sensor and there was people taking notes, hmm. it was working for them. Like literally walking around the brewery with a clipboard, right. right? And, you know, when you look at the brewery, it's all about the receipt that you follow. So how you make that process more repeatable. One of the things that I was discussing that sometimes when a batch doesn't come out good, they can rename it and they can create great stuff. But you cannot do always that. So the problem is if you throw away an entire batch, the economical input of that is massive for someone that is not a large scale. So there was two elements. One with the brownfield. The second one was, yes, we are very good at Dell to do big things, right? We working with all the biggest customers in the world. Mm. Let's try to take something very small and concentrate in changing something there. Well, it's back to your concept of constraints. That's a different set of constraints, yeah. Exactly. And actually, that's what we try to do also with the Project Frontier, that we need to start small and grow. Can you describe Project Frontier? You mentioned that, um, but I don't know that we've defined it. Yeah, Project Frontier is uh, our intent, is a project that we launched uh, last year where we are going to have a horizontal software platform for the edge. This horizontal software platform for the edge will allow us, obviously, to run on our compute in all the form, will allow us to solve the constraint of the edge. When I speak about the constraint of the edge, as we mentioned, the fact that you cannot trust anything, the fact that you don't have IT people at the edge, so you don't have people in the brewery that they know how to set up a gateway. So we're going to automate that. We can do that for small, starting with one. We can do for 1,000. We can secure all the device with zero trust, so you don't necessarily need to think about security because it's already embedded in the device, in the software. And also, we will be able to deploy the application that they are need to collect this data and present the data. Now, the way that it works today at the edge, you're doing one thing at a time, and so you end up with a lot of silo. In the case of a manufacturing, you can have a manufacturing preventive maintenance use case and the ISV or the SI that prescribe that will prescribe also an infrastructure. So it comes with its own infrastructure. You can have the necessity to have a smart building. So control your temperature in the building and all of that. You're going to someone else because it's outcome-based. You remember the outcome? Then that person prescribe you, again, another infrastructure and another set of things. There is no necessity to have all these different silos. Because with our experience, we can run multiple things on the same infrastructure. We can manage that infrastructure in different way. But what we're doing is basically also simplify the edge. There is no reason why certain applications they cannot run with other applications. So that's the technology we bring with the security and with the simplification. So basically, it's democratize the edge and make sure that people can manage from one to thousand of devices with always security in mind and with zero touch capability. They're not IT persona. That's what yeah. is Project Frontier. So it's an horizontal platform that can 
solve the challenge of the edge, the constraint of the edge, including obviously running on Dell hardware. You know, when I was talking to Matthew of Exhibit A, he was describing all of these manufacturing lines and tanks and mills and things. Can you describe the physical layout and where the Dell technology is today and where do you imagine putting it tomorrow? Like, what, is, what does the space look like? Today, our compute is a gateway. So we is just... hanging uh, on the wall? Is it under a desk? Is it... It's, a, it's actually in a, it's a little enclosure in, on the wall. Okay. That's okay. how it is. It's not definitely in a rack or in data center, as I said. It's hanging there. <laughs> we connect to that sensor that they come in from uh, the tanks. Basically, Gateway is very powerful. It has a lot of CPU power, but also has a lot of different connectivity. The Gateway support Wi-Fi 6 and 5G. With our partner ISV, Talent Device-wise, we can collect this data, send to them, and present those data to the brewery back on any sort of device. So there are sensors that are on the equipment today that are communicating to the gateway in a zero-trust, secure fashion. Yeah. And the gateway is reading the data as it's produced. Continuous reading the data, storing some of the data there, and then send this data to the ISV, in this case, talent. So we create a dashboard that they can use for monitoring pressure and temperature for the fermentation tank. Okay. So the employees have a, a laptop or something where they can go to a, a, a website? Yes, you can go to a website. And this is just the first use case that we are attacking, as, as you heard. There are other use cases, like how you put the beer in the cans and how you make sure that you have quality there, how you make sure that you can look at the cans. For example, there, we have another partner that we are using where we can look with the smart camera how, for example, a label is put on a can. If there is any defect on the can, we can put sensor about uh, reading the temperature. And all of that can be also processed by a gateway or multiple gateways. They work all together or another compute that we can centralize. So we start with a very small use case to prove that, A, we can have the 5G connectivity, we can use the Wi-Fi, we can connect sensor, and we can send the data where they need to be sent as well. And then we will keep in expanding. Why I love to partner with them is obviously because there are a lot of possibility there because there are no other automation. So we have place where we can play around, we can make things better. Yeah, and there's lots of places where things can, can, right. can go wrong, so to speak, or, right. or could be analyzed to improve the quality or or the beer, even in the experimentation part, you know? Yeah, and it's an experimentation, but also it's, uh, it's very good because it allows us also to prove of our, some of our theory. Especially, you need to work on a very tight budget, for example. I mean, that's, that's a constraint, right, for them. So everything that we can do for improve that and we can prove, it's also an ROI that we can demonstrate, right? right. And, and it's very important. So because sometimes you start from this outcome that they are very high level, but if you collect the data and you put the things in a real life, that's why we like this small environment, but you can collect the data. You can start to see how you produce an ROI as well for, not for the gig, not for the technical person, but for the person that really look at that outcome. So I can convert that, technical ROI in something that is more important for the brewery, for example, process. And so back to outcomes. Yeah. 
That's that's great. So, Perluka, thank you. This was an amazing conversation. And what I'm hoping to do is to get you back with Matthew from Exhibit A. And let's put these two pieces together. Let's put the technologist and the brewer in the same room and have a conversation about how technology delivers outcomes. That sound like a great idea? Awesome. Great idea. Thank you. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and a review and tell a friend. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of our partners at Dell Technologies. Simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting dell.com.